you know, in many ways, our, our culture has been shaped and formed by various monuments and memorials. And this might be this might be less true today than it was perhaps years ago, but I think it still remains true that uh, we continue to find ways to establish new monuments and memorials uh, as part of city development and, and things of that nature. Here in Jeff at the Big Four Station, there's a, a monument there that stands to mark the high water mark of the Great Flood of 1937, when 90% of the city of Jeffersonville was submerged underwater. Estimations of the damage of the flood in today's dollars is over $3.3 billion. Yes, that's what it means. Billion dollars. Money stands to serve as a reminder of the disaster that occurred. Nationally, there are a variety of other monuments and memorials as well. Of course, this last week we celebrated Memorial Day, a day that we are setting aside for the purpose of just remembering that those who gave their lives for uh, the service of this country. But there's perhaps no more uh, more recognizable memorial than that of the tomb of the unknown soldier in Arlington National. <laughs> These batteries have a bad habit of dying at the wrong time. Yeah, it makes a difference, yes. So there is no more recognizable memorial than that of the tomb of the unknown soldier there in Arlington National Cemetery. Their lives an unidentified service man from one of our armed forces who died in World War I. The bodies of many of that war were either unable to be recovered or were completely unable to be identified. And so that, that tomb serves as a memorial and a place for families to go and mourn. Their unrecovered loved ones, and for the rest of us to recognize the high cost of war and the high cost of freedom. It's a monument, it's a marker, it's, it's to cause us to remember, to reflect upon the cost. These monuments, they're intended for that purpose, they're intended to be that reminder for us, but sometimes when, a remi- when this monument is continually in our face, perhaps we begin to kind of be desensitized to the meaning there and we begin to forget what the very thing that the memorial was intended for us to remember. I don't know if you've been down to Big Four Station and if you've seen the monument that is there and, and if that monument caused you to reflect, like, oh yes, there was this flood here that occurred in 1937. Most of us, we, we weren't around for that, so we don't have a remembrance. We weren't directly affected by that. So we might just see that and say, oh, that's an interesting piece of art. Right, so that can happen where the, the monument seems to lose some of its significance over time. There can be a danger in familiarity. We begin to look past it. But does that danger, is that in danger inherent within the monument itself or is that within something within ourselves? Is it the monument's fault that we do not remember? Or is that our own fault? I think it's possible that it could be the monument's fault in a way. I mean, if it's not distinct enough, if there's nothing you know, particularly remarkable about it, if it doesn't have a symbolic meaning, it can be easy to forget the significance of the monuments. But in most cases, I would suggest that if we forget the meaning and the significance of a memorial or of a monument, that that is really a reflection upon us as a society, as a people, 
It's the people's fault if we fail as, as parents and as a society to teach the next generation the significance of what that memorial and what that monument stood for. In the book of Joshua, God helped the, the Israelites to cross over the Jordan River. As they had, they had come out of the land of Egypt, they had wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and they were now pre- uh, passing into the Promised Land. They were crossing over the Jordan River, and there was a miracle that occurred in that moment, where as the priests carried the Ark of the Covenant into the Jordan River, that the water stopped, and they all crossed across on dry land. And so God said to the people to establish a memorial there, to remember the, the moment that God helped the Israelites cross the Jordan River. And so we read this in the book of Joshua. This is Joshua chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone on his shoulder. This was a leader of the twelve tribes of Israel. And so there was a leader from each of the twelve tribes. Twelve stones, large boulders on their shoulders. Take up a stone upon his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel. That this may be a sign among you. And when your children ask in time to come, what do those stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them. The waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord when it passed over the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. That was the express purpose of that memorial in that moment. That there was to be this, this memorial, this, this pile of stones set up. And so when you're going about and your children see that, like, Daddy, why is that that pile of rocks there like that? What, what's the purpose of that? Oh, you see, son, this, this is the moment of deliverance for the people of Israel. When God brought the people into the promised land, when we crossed the Jordan River, God caused the river to stop. He performed a mighty act for us, a mighty deed, the first of many, as we were to come into the great promised land that He has given to our people. It was a memorial, it was a reminder. And the onus was on the parents to teach the next generation the significance of that memorial. Well, God has done a mighty work for us. He has done a mighty deed for His church. As believers in Jesus Christ, in His death, His burial, and His resurrection, we have been given a memorial The greatest act of love that that has ever been done. Jesus Christ dying on the cross. Son of God incarnate. God in human flesh. Paying the ultimate price. Beaten by soldiers. Having his beard ripped out. A crown of thorns pressed upon his head. Nails piercing his wrist. Side piercing into his, or spears piercing into his side hanging on the cross, literally suffocating in his own bodily fluid as his lungs filled with blood and water. Christ dying on the cross, enduring the wrath that should have been upon our head. Christ endured that for us. And he wants us to remember He wants us to remember the significance of what occurred there that day on that cross. His body that was broken. 
though he had no sins of his own to pay for. Yet he still died. His blood that was poured out. So he gave us this memorial. We often refer to it as the Lord's table or, or communion. Today we're going to observe that memorial. But, but before we do, we want to spend some time just examining what the Scriptures say about the Lord's table. Just reminded afresh and anew what the significance of this is. Reminded of what we're doing. Because we never want to get into the, the habit and the pattern of just, okay, yeah, we've got the Lord's table, we've got, we've got the grape juice, we've got the, the cracker here, and we just kind of, this is just what we do in church, and we just, we go through the motions of it. We never want to get to that place. Every time we approach the Lord's table, we want to be doing so, reflecting upon the true significance and the meaning of what Jesus Christ gave to these elements. So we want to be reminded of that this morning. There have been different understandings of the Lord's table throughout the history of the church, and we're not going to go into all of those in detail today. If you want to know more about those, feel free to come talk to me and we can have that conversation but today I'm just going to be focusing on, on what the Scripture says about these elements. We're going to be looking at a few texts, primarily 1 Corinthians 11, but uh, we'll get to that in a, in a moment. But then we want to talk about how we, as a, as a brand new church, we've never observed communion here as a part of Pillar Fellowship. So we're just going to be walking through how it is that we are going to practice things here at Pillar Fellowship. So our general outline for today, first we're going to look at the institution of the Lord's table, its inauguration. Then we're going to see the reminders built within the Lord's table. And finally, see the practice of the Lord's table, of how we will observe it here. So first is the institution or the inauguration of the Lord's table. When did the Lord's table start? Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, this is towards the end of, of Jesus' earthly ministry. In fact, this is the night he would be betrayed by Judas Iscariot. That they were celebrating the, the Passover. Of course, the, if you're familiar with the Passover, it is the, the feast that the Jews would observe. It commemorated the time in the Old Testament when God was, was bringing the, the Hebrew people out of the land of Egypt. Right? They were in bondage. They were slaves in the land of Egypt, forced to do the will of the Egyptians. And God raised up Moses to lead the people out of the land of Egypt and into the land that he promised to their fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And so there were the series of plagues, right? We remember those plagues. And the final plague was the death of the firstborn children. But God made a provision for the people of Israel. That they would, if they would kill the lamb and, and dip the hyssop in the blood and, and spread it upon their doorpost, that the angel of death would pass over those homes. And they would not be affected by the plague that would strike the Egyptians. But they had to act in faith. It was an act of faith to spread the blood over the doorposts for the angel of death to pass over. And so every year, once a year, they would observe the Passover feast. And that is what they are doing here in Matthew chapter 26 as they observe the Passover. And we're going we're gonna to pick things up in Matthew 26, verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread. 
And after blessing it, broke it and, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the, my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So this is the institution or the inauguration of the Lord's table. Jesus taking the bread and the cup and this is my body, this is my blood. You might wonder, okay, let's, let's think about what's actually going on here. What's, what was going on in the Passover feast? It's, it's pretty interesting that we actually have preserved for us today and there are actually Jews who still observe this today that they sadly do not recognize Jesus as their Messiah, but they still observe the, the Passover Seder. It's called the Seder meal. And it's a, it's a special meal that is filled with all kinds of, of significance and, and commemorations about what God has done for the people of Israel over time. And so we have these unique elements built within the Passover meal, and the, the patriarch of the family would be leading the family through the observance of the Passover meal and highlighting the significance of each element along the way. And so we have him breaking the bread. The bread was called matzah bread. It's bread very similar to what we will be having here today. In fact, I have a, a piece of bread that's designed to resemble the matzah bread. This would have been very similar to what they would have had in those days. It's a, this one's a little broken already, but it would have been a whole piece of bread. It has uh, holes pierced in it where they had this tool that they would roll over it for the purpose of baking evenly, etc. But it's an unleavened bread. It kind of re- resembles more of a cracker to us here today, but they would consider it a bread. And so this is the matzah bread. And in the, in the Passover Seder, they would have three pieces of bread that would be sitting there. And when the time came for the bread, they, they would take the middle bread and they would break it. And they would set aside the larger piece and they would wrap it in a napkin. And they would set that aside. In fact, they, as I was reading, they said they would hide it. They would hide it, but then they would get it out later for the purpose of, of having it with their, what would essentially be their dessert. But then they would take the smaller piece that was broken off and they would break it up and distribute it amongst everyone there. And then later on again, they would come out and, and the, the larger piece, that matzo bread that was hidden in the napkin would, would come out and then they would partake of that together as well. And this is the tradition of the Passover Seder. This is the tradition of the, of the matzo bread. Even before the, the coming of the Messiah, this, this is the thing that they were observing and it's not really hard to see the significance and the symbolism. And it's, it's so remarkable to me that this, this could be overlooked by Jews who continue to observe the, the Passover Seder today and they don't see how this directly ties to the Messiah, to Jesus Christ. Right? We see the significance of it, of Jesus' body broken. And the Bible sa- says that those who come to faith in Christ partake in his sufferings, that we are partakers of his cross and of his death, symbolically. So that, that would be distributed and, and they would eat that. But then the, the hiding of the matzah bread, of the larger piece, as Jesus' body was wrapped in linen and, and laid in the tomb, 
and later comes out and his, Christ's body was resurrected. It's, it's not difficult to see the, the new meaning, the new significance that Jesus Christ was giving to the Passover Seder as he broke the bread and said, this is my body. This points to me. This points to the Messiah. The Messiah is here. He's come. My body will be broken for you. And he distributes that. Do this in remembrance of me. Every time you observe this together, remember me. Remember the sacrifice. That was the matzah bread. Then there was the Seder cup. Wine was poured four times throughout the course of the, the evening, each time carrying a different meaning based on God's promises to the Israelites as he was leading them out of the land of Egypt. The four cups represent the four sayings of God from Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 through 7. I'm just going to read that text. You don't have to turn there, but it says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. Now notice the statements of God, the promises of God in the midst of this passage. I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Those four statements. I will bring you out. I will deliver. I will redeem. And I will take you to be my people and will be your God. Scholars believe that as they were observing the Passover Seder there that evening... That Jesus Christ, it would have been that third cup, which is known as the cup of redemption. That Jesus would have blessed that cup and said, this is my blood of the new covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus took that cup of redemption, that cup of purchasing. God redeemed the people of Israel. He, he purchased them from the Egyptians. He brought them out of the land of Egypt. And Jesus Christ redeems us with His sacrifice on the cross, paying the penalty, paying the price for our sins. And He gives this new significance, this new meaning to a Passover that they would have observed for every year that they've been alive. They would have understood the significance of this and now they're seeing it in connection with Jesus Christ. Jesus was communicating something to the, to the disciples in language they could understand about his death, about his burial, about his resurrection. I'm sure they didn't quite see the full significance of it in that moment. But later on, I know I'm sure that they saw clearly that this is exactly what was going on in the midst of it all. His body was crushed. We have broken pieces of bread. It was pierced, that, that tool that rolls over that pierces the bread signifies the piercing of the body of Christ. His blood was poured out on the cross on our behalf. You, know, you picture the, the, the wine being in a pitcher, being poured out into the cup, poured out for us. Jesus said to observe these things. We have the bread, we have the cup in remembrance of Him. It is a memorial to what He accomplished on the cross. It was the institution or the inauguration of the Lord's table. Turn with me now, if you will, over to 1 Corinthians 11. 
This is perhaps the most well-known passage in relation to the Lord's table. A common passage that would be examined, and rightfully so. It is the, the fullest and most clearest explanation of what is going on in the midst of, of the Lord's table. But in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul had to correct the practice of the church in relation to the Lord's table. In those days, they were observing it in a way where uh, they would be having these, what they called, love feasts. They would have been gathering the church together, observing, for lack of a better term, like a, a first century potluck of sorts, right? It's a, it's a little anachronistic, but that's the kind of the idea. They were gathering together and they were, they were fellowshipping with one another. They were eating together and sharing the meal together and enjoying one another's presence together. But they were doing things in such a way that it was reflecting selfishness in their own hearts. As they were approaching the Lord's table, they were not doing so with, with reverence and with a sobriety, but were rather concerned about their own selves. And so we have Paul correcting them in the midst of things. Look at me, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17. Paul says, but, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Look down at verse 20. It says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's ta- supper that you eat. That may be what they thought they were doing. But Paul says, no, you're not observing the Lord's supper. He says, for, for in eating, each one of you goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have a house, houses to eat and drink in? Or you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No. I will not. So the situation of what was going on, they were having these, these love feats, and, and as a part of that feast, they were observing the Lord's table together. But there was this problem where, you know, in those days, a lot of times when there were poorer members of the community, as they were coming to these feasts, that was, that was probably the best meal that they were going to get all week. And so they were coming, looking to to share in fellowship with one another, but also they were going to have the opportunity to get a good, solid meal. But then there were others who were coming in, and they were only thinking of themselves. They were only thinking of their own interests. And they were coming, and they were were stuffing themselves. They were eating, and they were drinking, even to the point of getting drunk at the celebration of the Lord's table. And Paul seeks to correct them on this. He says, no, this is not how we do things. This is not right. One of you is getting drunk and you're, you're stuffing yourselves and there's others who are going hungry. Brothers and sisters, this not ought to, not to be. We ought not to be thinking of ourselves and, and to just be just focused on that in the midst of this. No, we need to approach this better. The Lord's table does not exist to satisfy your selfish appetites. It exists as a memorial, to remember what Christ did on the cross. And so he recounts the words of Jesus in the following verses. Pick it up with me at verse 23. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat and this for often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so he reminds the church that, that the practice of the Lord's Supper is, is for remembering the sacrifice of Christ. It's for remembering what Christ's own instructions there at the Passover meal. Just want us to notice three things about this memorial here. First, we notice the past. We notice what was accomplished in the past. Christ died for our sins. His body was broken. His, his blood was poured out. And we look back to that. We see what has occurred in the past. But notice what Paul says about the present. He says, notice here in the present, in verse 26, he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. You proclaim the Lord's death. He says, every time you gather together, every time you're observing this, this is a a symbolic picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a current proclamation of what Christ accomplished on the cross, that all those who repent of their sins and place their, their trust in Christ alone for salvation, they will have eternal life. They will have their sins forgiven. Because of the great love of the Savior, all who turn in faith to Him will have their sins forgiven. They will be brought back into a right relationship with the Father. They will be adopted into His family. They will be made made heirs of the kingdom of God and have access to the Father for all eternity. This is the promise of the gospel of Christ. And so we look to the past and we see what Christ accomplished, but it's a current proclamation. Every time we gather, every time we observe this, we proclaim the death of our Lord Jesus Christ and remember that there is the gospel that stands ready to save us here today for all who have faith in Him. So we look back, we have a present proclamation, but he also says in doing so we also look forward. We look back, we have a a present proclamation, but we also look forward. We see the future. The last three words of verse 26 says, until He comes. Jesus' own words that we saw back in Matthew chapter 26 was that he would not partake of this again until he did so in the kingdom that is yet to come. So Paul says we look forward to that day. He says we observe this and we remember the sacrifice of Christ on, on the cross in the past, but we look forward to the day when Jesus Christ will return. That is a a sure reality that Jesus Christ is coming back. We don't know when. It could be today. Praise God if it happens today. Maybe it's tomorrow. Maybe it's in a month. Maybe it's in a hundred years. We do not know when Jesus Christ is going to return. But we do know that it's going to happen. And every time we, we observe the Lord's table together, we look forward to the day when we observe this together, the marriage supper of the Lamb. When we with all the saints of God, celebrate the coming, conquering King as we reign with Him for a thousand years. Second Peter 3 stresses the sure reality that Jesus Christ is going to come back. And so when we observe the Lord's table, we are reminded of His own words, that there will be a day He's not going to partake of this again 
until we all do so together in his kingdom. So we look back, we have a a present proclamation, and we look forward, and so we're reminded of these things in the midst of the Lord's table. So those are, we see the institution or the inauguration of the Lord's table, we see the reminders built within the Lord's table, and now we turn our attention to the practice of the Lord's table and, and how we will observe it here. Scripture is almost entirely silent, actually, on the, the actual practice of the Lord's table. There's, there's precious few passages that directly address the how of how we are to observe it as a church body. I talked about the, the elements of the Passover Seder, but, but we know that information about the, the Passover Seder from other sources outside of Scripture, Right? There's nothing within Scripture itself that says you need to observe the Lord's table in the same way that the Passover Seder was observed. Right? That's absent. That's not there. So we don't have that command of Scripture to observe it in that way. In fact, the only clear instructions about the specifics of the how we are to observe come from this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And the point is clear that we are to observe it soberly. To observe it soberly. That's If you're still in 1 Corinthians 11, let's pick it up in verse 27. It says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the Lord and drink of the cup, eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we have judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. For when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Paul is addressing the the people there. Of course, again, there's a situation where they're they're approaching the Lord's table with with selfish motives, and they're engorging themselves on the food, not just of the elements of the Lord's table itself, but on the other food that is there. And there are people that are going hungry. So Paul is seeking to correct them on this, to to not approach these, these elements with these selfish motives. They were polluting the purpose and the significance of the Lord's table with their actions. And Paul says, God has actually judged the people amongst you for this. He says, some of you are sick. Some of you have even died because of how you have approached the Lord's table. So he warns them, don't approach this table flippantly. Don't approach it like this, but examine yourself, examine your heart, examine your motives. And I think the point is less the point about, oh, you better watch out. You know, God might sna- smack you if you step out of line. I think the, the focus is less on, on something like that and more on the concept of, you know, God takes this seriously. This is a memorial of, of what God, of what Christ accomplished on the cross, of what Christ endured. God takes this seriously. And if He takes it seriously, then we ought to as well. So as we examine ourselves, we says we need to partake in a manner worthy of our God, worthy of the gospel. But we also need to remind it that, that this is a picture of the gospel itself. 
Right? Sometimes I think we can, we can approach the Lord's table and, 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 and we go through this examining uh, process and we examine our heart and we look within, our, is there any, any sin within my heart that has not been dealt with? And that's right and that's appropriate. But we also remember this is a picture of the gospel. Right? The, the gospel where, where Jesus Christ paid for our sins. The very sins that we're examining within our heart to, to see if there's anything unconfessed within ourselves. Christ paid for that sin. Right? There's, there's hope in the gospel. There is hope even within these elements. See, the gospel tells us that left to ourselves, left to ourselves, we can't partake of the, of the, the Lord's table in a worthy manner. We can't do it on our own. We are sinful, fallen, finite human beings. There's nothing that we can do on our own. But it is the grace of God, it is the Holy Spirit within us that enables us and strengthens us to live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. And Christ died on the cross for our sins, all of our sins, including approaching the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. So we need to be reminded of that, reminded of the gospel of Christ. We examine ourselves, yes, but we also rest in the very gospel that it proclaims. And so in a few minutes, we're going to partake of this together. It's, I don't know if it feels like a big moment for you. It feels like a big moment for me. Right? We're, we're a brand new church. We've been gathering together to worship the Lord together just for the month of May, and now here we are in June. And we're observing the Lord's table for the first time, that which Christ gave to the church to remember His sacrifice. It's a big moment. It's a significant thing. So how are we going to go about doing this? I have just four, four statements of how we're going to observe it. I've already mentioned the first one. Observe it soberly. We've talked about that. Examine ourselves, but rest in the gospel that it proclaims. So we observe it soberly. We want to observe it thoughtfully. Observe it thoughtfully to think about the elements. Think about what's going on here. When you look at the, the piece of bread that, with the jagged edges, you see that it's broken. You'll see the, it seems to be pierced there. Do the, do the words of Isaiah 53 go through your mind? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Think about that. What Christ endured for us. Think about the cup. Oh, yeah, they had wine, and we have grape juice here this morning. The grape juice is similar in color to, to the blood, and it's to reflect that. In those days, they would have poured the cup into, or poured it out of a pitcher into the cup. Christ's blood poured out for us on our behalf. We want to observe it thoughtfully. Hebrews quotes the book of Leviticus when it says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sins. Think about that. We think about these things. So we observe it soberly. We observe it thoughtfully. We're going to observe it weekly. And depending on your church background, this, this might surprise you. I, I know I personally, I grew up in a tradition where we observed the Lord's table once a month. The first Sunday of the month was set aside for the purpose of observing the Lord's table. The previous church that I was a part of observed it once every six weeks. And there are still other churches that have traditions that we observe, they observe it weekly. So why are we making the choice here to observe 
the Lord's table on a weekly basis, every single week. You know, I mentioned earlier that there's, there's precious little in the Scriptures as far as specific instructions about how we are to observe the Lord's table. And that includes frequency. Like, there's no one verse in the Bible that says, do this in remembrance of me and do it every single week when you gather together as a church. Like, we don't find that specific instruction there. But while we don't have that instruction, we do see a pattern and an example of the early church, even in the book of Acts. This is Acts chapter 2, verse 42. This is considered a, a foundational passage for the early life of the church. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of, pre- of bread and uh, the prayers. And the breaking of the bread likely refers to the Lord's table and the observance of that. They were observing that very early on together. Another passage in Acts, this is later on when the church was a little bit more established, Acts chapter 20. We find this description of one church's meeting in Acts chapter 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, they identified the breaking of the bread or the observance of the Lord's table. They identified that as the purpose for which they gathered together. Then it goes on to say that we gathered together to break bread. Paul talked with them intending to depart the next day, prolonged his speech until midnight. So they have that gathering together as a church. Paul is teaching the Word of God, but they gathered together to observe the Lord's table. And it seems that this was their habit. This was the, the early pattern of the early church, that every time they gathered together to worship the Lord, to study God's Word, they observed the Lord's table as a part of their worship together. Again, this doesn't mean we're required to do so. And this doesn't mean that other churches that don't observe it weekly, that that they're doing it wrong. Like, we're not saying that. But we see this pattern in Scripture. And so I think we would do well to follow after that pattern. We also have the testimony of documents from the first and second century documenting weekly observance of the Lord's table. So this, this was the pattern. This was the habit of the church throughout the early years. And it wasn't until really the, the establishment of the Roman Catholic Church, that communion began to be observed less frequently. And for a period of time in, in history when the Catholic Church was dominant, it was only once a year. And so we see that happening. And at the time of the Reformation, weekly observance began to be revived once again. From a practical point of view, observing it weekly gives us all the benefits of proclaiming the gospel every single week. And being reminded of Christ's death every single week. And proclaiming his death to one another each week. It also ensures that that no one will miss out if they happen to be sick the first Sunday of the month. Or if they happen to be on vacation, they're not going to miss out on observing the Lord's table. Not that there's anything magical happening in these elements. It's not. It's a memorial. right? It is a memorial for us to remind ourselves. But we see that it was an important part of of the habits and the pattern of the early church, a part of their worship of the Lord. And so we want to observe it that way. We want to observe it soberly, observe it thoughtfully, and observe it weekly, and finally, observe it orderly. Observe it orderly. We will do things in an orderly fashion. So here's, here's how we will observe things here today and then likely in coming weeks. We have the elements here and for you know, sanitary purposes and for convenience purposes, they're already individually. They've got individual cups. We've got individual uh, baggies with a little cracker in them. And so 
these are the elements here. But what we will do, we'll have everyone come, come up by row. The first row will come up and they will come in through the, the center aisle, pick up the elements, and they will so, circle back around to the outside aisles to return back to the seats. And so we will observe it just in this orderly fashion, partaking of the Lord's table together. This coming up to the, to the center here and picking up the elements, we can think of this as symbolizing a, the common source of eternal life that we have in Jesus Christ. Right? There is no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. It is only in the name of Jesus Christ. And so by us coming together to, to this central location, we can think of that as symbolizing that we must all come individually to Jesus Christ. And so we can partake of it that way. So you'll pick it up and we'll return to our seats and you'll hold on to your elements and then we will all partake of it together to symbolize the unity that we have in Christ. For all who have placed their trust in their faith in Christ Jesus for salvation, we have unity in the bonds of Christ, unity in the blood of Christ. So we will partake of those elements together in unison to proclaim that together, to recognize that unity with one another. So in a few moments, in just a moment, we will do this. We will observe it this way. We're, I'm going to conclude this sermon. We will sing one more song that will direct our minds specifically on the, on the Lord's table. And then we will do as I described. Row by row, the first row first, and then the second row just come through and then circle back around and return to your seats where we, I will lead us in partaking of that together. So we want to observe this memorial soberly, thoughtfully, weekly, and orderly, remembering the past sacrifice of Christ, the current proclamation of the gospel, and the future return of our Lord. Jesus Christ is coming back. Amen. Let's pray. Father, do you thank you so much for the sacrifice of Christ. Thank you for, as we've been thinking about these things here today, I thank you that we can be reminded of these truths afresh and anew that the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, his death or his burial, his resurrection, praise God, Lord, thank you so much. As we observe this together today, I pray that it would be a good reminder for us today that our hearts would be in tune with what your word has to say, that we would observe this soberly, examining our hearts, thoughtfully considering these elements, what we are doing here today. Cause us, Lord, to walk after your ways, to be bold witnesses for you, proclaiming the gospel of Christ. I pray that this would be a meaningful time for us here today. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.